Good morning, Grace family. My name is Esther, and I occasionally have the privilege of teaching here at Grace, and I'm so glad to be with all of you this morning, whether you're here, whether you're watching online at home. Today we get to continue in our series in Acts. If you were with us last week, you know that Daniel started a new series in the book of Acts. So the book of Acts functions sort of like a sequel to the book of Luke. In his Gospel of Luke, Luke writes about the life and ministry of Jesus. And then he joins Paul in his ministry, and we see that he writes in the book of Acts about that ministry, Peter's ministry, the emerging church. The book of Acts is an account of God's plan of salvation for humanity. But it's also an account of how God wants to use his people as part of that plan. So today we're going to look at Acts 2. We're going to see the church emerging in Jerusalem, and that's going to lead into further chapters where we see more ministry from Peter and from Paul. And we're going to see countless examples as we move through this whole series of God using his people, of calling them into the work that he's already doing and using them in his kingdom work alongside of him. It's going to be exciting. So this week, we're going to make our way through to the next chapter of Acts, which is 2. And this is a very special week because we get to see the birth of the church in Jerusalem. So we don't have time this morning to go really detailed into all of Acts 2, but I did want to summarize it for you so that we can see sort of how we end up in the verses that we're going to focus on this morning. So Acts 2 is broken into three major sections. In the first section, it's the day of Pentecost, the giving of the Holy Spirit. The second section is a sermon that Peter preaches to the crowd that has gathered because of Pentecost. And the third, which is the section we'll focus on today, is a picture of life in the emerging church. So as we think about life in the emerging church, we want to see sort of how we got there. So let's focus first in the first portion of Acts 2. So the passage opens on the day of Pentecost. Now, you and I know and celebrate Pentecost as the giving of the Holy Spirit. But of course, before that, it was a Jewish holiday. The, the day of Pentecost, which is what's known as the Feast of Weeks, was and is a Jewish holiday that's celebrated by Jews around the world. It occurs every year seven weeks after Passover. Passover, of course, was another Jewish holiday that celebrated when the angel of the Lord passed over the houses of the Israelites and only took the lives of the firstborn sons in Egypt. So these Jews are gathered in Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost, seven weeks after Passover. And it is no coincidence that this is the moment that God chooses to send his Holy Spirit. Clearly, this is part of his plan. He uses this moment when Jews are gathered from everywhere to send his Holy Spirit so that he can give them the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. So Acts 2 opens with the disciples gathered together, a mighty wind rushes through and fills the house where they're gathered. Flames of fire rest over their head. They're filled with the Holy Spirit and they speak in tongues. And then they go outside and they continue to speak in tongues and a crowd gathers. And this crowd is amazed because they're hearing in their own languages what Jesus has done on the cross, his death and his resurrection and his victory over sin. The, Luke tells us that when the disciples go outside and this crowd is amazed, it's, it's pointing to what God is going to do in future times. And God uses this Jewish celebration, this time where all these people are gathered because it's got maximum exposure for him. He's got a maximum amount of people from a huge variety of places 
that are now hearing the good news of Jesus. We actually had a wonderful Pentecost service here at this church at the end of May. We heard this Acts 2 passage read, and then we heard people from our own congregation in their native languages reading from Psalm 96. It was a beautiful service, a wonderful reminder of God's mighty acts when he sent his Holy Spirit. So as the Pentecost festivities wrap up, and as these people from all around the world, it says there's Parthians, Mede, Elamite, Judeans, Cappadocians, people from Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphia, Egypt, Libya, Rome, Cretan, and Arabia. So all these people now return home bearing the good news of what Jesus has done on the cross. And this is how God's word spreads to the world. This is the moment he chose to send his spirit so that people would have his good news and they would go back from Jerusalem to all these various places and they would spread his gospel. God's hand is so clearly at work and he's so clearly using his people, his faithful followers to accomplish that plan and his purpose for the world. So we've seen how the Holy Spirit and the word of God goes out to the world. But as we move through the second chapter of Acts, now we get to see how it takes root in Jerusalem, as the church there begins to grow in numbers and in strength. This brings us to the second section of Acts 2, in which Peter preaches to the crowd a sermon that shows that everything that has just happened is actually scriptural fulfillment. It's actually fulfillment of what has been predicted. The crowd, as we said, is amazed at what they've seen of, of hearing all these languages, and they think the disciples are drunk. And Peter says, no, it's not that they're drunk, it's they're actually filled with the Holy Spirit. And these languages as a result of being filled with the Holy Spirit and God at work. Peter quotes from Joel, showing that it was predicted beforehand that God's people would prophesy and that the Holy Spirit would be poured out. Then Peter quotes from Psalm 16, in which David talks about the Lord being seated at his right hand, predicting the resurrection of a Messiah king. And then Peter says in verse 36, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. The people, it says, are cut to the heart, and they say, what should we do? And Peter says, repent, be baptized, receive the forgiveness of your sins, and receive the Holy Spirit. And this portion of Acts 2 ends by saying that the people did. They accepted what Peter said. They received the Holy Spirit. They received the forgiveness for their sins. They were baptized. And 3,000 people were added to their number that day. I have to say, that's a pretty effective sermon that Peter's got going on there. Oh, to preach a sermon where 3,000 people get saved in a day. I don't think that'll ever happen to me, but I suppose every preacher can dream, right? <laughs> So that brings us to our section for today, verses 42 through 47. We've seen how the church began to spread through the world. We've seen it take root in Jerusalem. And now we're going to get a picture of what life was like for that church in Jerusalem. If you've been around church for a while, you're probably familiar with this passage. There's been a lot of discussion about what this passage means, a lot of debate, a lot of controversy even. So I want us to read it all together again. And then we will make our way slowly through it verse by verse as we see the implications of this passage for us in our church today. So if you have a Bible or something on your app or there's a Bible under your seat, you can turn to Acts 2 
And we're going to be in verse 42. Acts 2, verse 42. This is what it says. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added daily to their number those who were being saved. So the debate about this passage is, is this passage a specific guideline for how every church should look in all cultures at all times? Or is this passage merely a description of how this church looks, looked at this time? So is this passage a set of requirements and rules that all of our churches should do? Or is this just a glimpse, just a picture of what this church did, how this church functioned? I don't believe that this, these verses are a mandatory manual of how churches should look. I don't think they are a playbook that we are supposed to imitate down to the last detail because they weren't that for the first church either. There wasn't a set of entry requirements to join the church in Jerusalem. That's not what these verses are. And so that's not what they are for us either. But these verses do offer a look at what that first church was like. And it's a look that should hold true to our churches today. Luke is trying to give the believers now, future believers, an insight into what life in the early church looked like and he has a purpose for doing that. He's not just telling a nice story about a group of people who really liked each other and got along super well. Luke has a purpose, and it's because he wants us to treat each other the way that that early church treated the other believers in their body. So what then do these verses mean? How should we interpret these verses? What does God want for our churches? What does he want for his believers as we treat each other, what does he want for us to do? So let's start again in verse 42, and we're going to make our way through. In verse 42, you're going to see Luke identify chief characteristics of the body of believers that day. And then he's going to flesh out all of those characteristics as we move through the passage. So read with me again in verse 42 and see if you can find the four characteristics of church life that Luke mentions. So here we are again in 42 and 43. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. So Luke identifies four characteristics, four attributes of church life that were in existence for this emerging church. Luke says there are four parts of doing church together that were important to this church. First, teaching. We see that right away that teaching is very important to the early church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' instruction. Second, they were committed to the fellowship, meaning they were committed to other believers in their body. Third, they broke bread together. They ate in each other's homes. And fourth, they prayed together. So these four aspects we're going to look at each as they unfold in the passage. Commitment to teaching, emphasis on the body of believers, breaking bread together, and praying together. And then verse 43, as we just read, sort of rounds out this introduction 
to the early church as, as Luke links all of these miraculous signs, these wonders, these dreams, these visions, all these things that have the other believers in awe. He links those back to the Joel 2 prophecy that Peter had in his sermon saying, yes, this is a fulfillment of the Holy Spirit at work among his people. God is clearly doing something with these believers. So what do we take from these verses for our own church? First, which I'm sure comes as no surprise, teaching is an important part of what we do here on Sunday mornings. Sunday mornings are the best time for us to be in the word of God, teaching and instructing each other with the authority that Jesus has given us. It can be tempting to use Sunday services as a platform for cultural change or for movement, and there may be times where that's necessary, but I strongly believe that the primary purpose of our Sunday mornings together is to be in the word together, growing and learning from the instructions that God has given us. Luke says that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' instructions. Where did they get their instructions? From Jesus himself, the same place that we get our instructions when we lean into the word of God. I'm so grateful to go to a Bible teaching church, and I want to continue to challenge all of us to trust in the word of God and its power and to be committed to its proclamation here at Grace Brethren Church of Long Beach. <laughs> Continuing on to verse 44, we see the second aspect of church life expanded on, how they devoted themselves to the fellowship of believers. Look with me again at verse 44 and 45. We're going to see how they spent their time and how they spent their money. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Now, most scholars agree that this didn't mean that when the church formed or when a new convert would join the church, that they had to sell all their possessions and live in this commune together. That's not what's happening. Rather, it's that the Christians at that time began to view their possessions differently. Before Christ, they might have viewed their money as something to be amassed, something to be protected. But Luke says, after an encounter with Christ, when they're a part of this emerging church, they see their money as something to be open-handed with, something to help others in need. If someone had a need in that body, rather than seeing that need and that struggle, somebody would sell something, give that money, and solve that need. Luke says they had everything in common. That's part of the verse too. Now again, this is not that they had the exact same amount of possessions, that everything was exactly the same but rather that they all viewed their possessions as something that was available to anyone in the church. Everything they had was in common. It was held for anybody who needed it. You ready for this, the application? Again, the same for us today. What do we do with our wealth and possessions? Do we have an open hand with each other, giving as the need arises? It is a tragedy and a true reflection of something gone wrong if there is a believer in this body that has a need and we're aware of that need and we don't meet it. I'm thankful that most of the time that doesn't happen at this church. What better way to show the love of Jesus to a brother or a sister than to meet a tangible and practical need that they have? Now, I know not all of us are in the position to do that. Some of us are the brother in verse 45 that has the need but many of us are able to give generously. And I want to challenge us this morning to be doing that. 
Did you know that this church has a care team? Hopefully you do know that. The care team provides practical help. It could help you if you need help moving. It could help you if you don't drive and you need a ride, practical things like that. But the care team also provides financial help for those who are struggling. And how does the care team get that money? You and me, my friends. You and me. We are called to give generously. So when, the, when there is a need, the church can distribute it as they see fit, as the need arises. Are you giving regularly to this church? If you consider this church your home church, you should be. And I can say that because I don't work for the church, <laughs> but also because I deeply believe in giving generously as God has given to us. When we give generously, it is the true mark that we know that God has provided for us and it shows our trust in him. When we are open-handed with each other, we declare to God, I trust that you have given me enough. So something else to point out here before we leave these verses. Verse 44 says, all the believers were together. Again, this doesn't mean that they lived all together, and that doesn't mean that we have to either. I have a hard enough time living peaceably with the five other people who live in my house. No offense, I do not want to try to do that with all of you people, and I'm sure you don't want to do that with all of my people. But it does mean that they lived geographically near each other, that they were geographically close. When we live 45 minutes from our church, it's very difficult to be involved in the life of that church. If you live 45 minutes away, you don't wanna drive up on a Wednesday morning for a pool party. You don't wanna drive up on a Thursday night for a men's gathering. And these are not hypotheticals. These are real examples of life in our body. The men of grace meet the first Thursday of every month in various homes. And we just had a fantastic children's ministry pool party at the Chung's. Many of you were there. When this, it was this past Wednesday. When you live close to your church, you can engage in the activities of that church. And Luke says, this is essential for life together, that we actually do life together. He continues on in this vein in verse 46, showing the frequency of which they saw each other and how they were often in each other's homes. So look with me again at verse 46. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. <clears throat> Luke's point is clear. These people are devoted to each other. They love each other. They gather often. They frequently spend time together. Now we do this when we meet together on Sunday mornings and if you're part of a second hour fellowship. But there's another way that we can think about meeting together. Probably you've heard, if you go to this church regularly, that we are launching in the fall small groups, a new way of gathering together. These small groups are the perfect chance for us to do this, for us to do life together. So this summer, I want us to think about our fall. Take some time while things are a little slower and think about your fall and how you can create some space and some margin so that you can be a part of one of these groups. Right now, in the summer, when things are slower, when there's no sports, and there's no school, and there's no extracurricular activities, think about what you may need to say no to in the fall so that you can say yes to being a part of one of these small groups. Your presence in these small groups, it's, it's not just for your benefit. Your presence encourages the other believers in that small group and the body of believers as a whole. When we meet together, 
we hold everything in common. When we meet together, we have an opportunity to care for each other. We cannot attend to a need that we're not aware of. We've got to be involved in each other's lives. And these small groups is one great way to do that. The second part of verse 46 fleshes out the third characteristic that we mentioned in the beginning, where Luke said that the early church devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. So we've seen they had a commitment to teaching. We've seen that they valued each other, that they had an open hand with each other, with their finances, and that they met together often. And now we see that they broke bread together in each other's homes. And it says here in the second part of verse 46 that these first century believers broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. I love that description so much. Don't you just want to have dinner with someone that has a glad and sincere heart? It sounds so inviting, so welcoming. And this church has talked a lot about hospitality. And I think that's great because it's obviously an integral part of the Christian faith. Luke is saying that when we are in each other's homes, there is a unique opportunity, there's a unique intimacy where we can really know and be known. We have got an opportunity here to invite each other into each other's homes and break bread together, share a meal together. We're, all, we're called to offer hospitality and what a gift it is when we welcome another believer into our home and share a meal with them. It doesn't have to be fancy. It doesn't have to be gourmet. Luke's description is of the people's attitudes, not of the food, not of the centerpieces. They had glad and sincere hearts. Are we in the habit of inviting other believers from this church into our home for a meal? I know, of course, there was a long time where we couldn't do that, but thankfully we seem to mostly be on the other side. So let's get back into the habit of it, if we haven't already. This mention of being in each other's homes brings to mind a story about that my sister Sarah told me. Many of you probably know Sarah and Eric Marsh. Um, they went to this church for a long time. Eric was on staff here for many years. Sarah and Eric have five kids, and they noticed that they weren't frequently invited over to other people's houses. And they understood this. That's a lot of more people to cook for, and many of the homes in this area are small, and so it could be intimidating. But then Sarah told me the story of friends of theirs who really wanted to offer hospitality to the Marshes. So this couple, both of them had come from a small family and they had a small family, but they decided it was time for a new dining room table. And when they were looking at dining room tables, they bought the most enormous table they could find. And do you know why they bought that huge table? So they could have the Marshes over for dinner. They wanted a huge table in their house all the time so that they could have the Marsh family over for dinner. I love that story. It's just, it's so lovely that these people wanted to bless Sarah and Eric and their family in this way, wanted to offer hospitality. That is being an Acts 2 Christian. That, my friends, is a glad and sincere heart. Luke calls us to break bread with each other, to be in each other's homes, because he knows that it's in those moments that we can really see each other's needs and attend to those needs. It's in the intimacy of eating together in our homes where we can say, I see you and you see me and we are in this life together. Again, it doesn't have to be fancy. It could be a card table in your living room with a box of pizza. The purpose is we are in each other's homes offering hospitality with glad and sincere hearts. Okay, on to the last verse, verse 47. So we're going to read this verse, and we're going to see Luke's final characteristic, the fourth aspect 
of life in the early church. And that was mentioned in verse 42, the one that we saw that they prayed together. As Luke explains further here, we see that the believers prayed together and praised God together. So let's read verse 47. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. These believers devoted themselves to prayer, our verse said. And now we see that these prayers include praise to God. They gathered to worship, they gathered to offer thanksgiving for what God had done in the person of Jesus Christ and for what he was doing in their own lives and now in the life of the city. I love that as, as Luke wraps this up, he sort of shows that all of these aspects, these regular rhythms of church life, these things that the believers did, their commitment to teaching, their devotion to each other, to being open-handed with each other and sharing, their breaking bread with each other and having meals in each other's homes, and now praying together. All these regular rhythms of church life, people in Jerusalem noticed, and they liked what they saw. It was appealing to them. This sort of aspect of church life, this growing and being together, drew believers, and daily people were added to this church. That is a challenge to us. As we engage in these regular aspects of church life, as we do these regular habits and rhythms, are people drawn to us? Are people drawn to this church? I hope so. I think so. So in this final section, we see that the believers are devoting themselves to praying together, the fourth aspect. And I want to invite us to think about our own habits of prayer. You might be like me, maybe always a little embarrassed by your prayer life, but I have come to see in recent months that the best way to grow in my prayer life is to practice praying. Did you know that there are lots of opportunities for prayer at this church? We have a prayer team that anybody is welcome to join. Every third Sunday of the month, we have a prayer night. Additionally, the church also offers these extra prayer and worship nights. My husband and I were at the one in May that was on the labyrinth, and we both found it to be such a holy and refreshing time to worship with you guys and to pray in small groups. The opportunities are out there, my friends. Let's find ways to build our prayer muscles. So clearly, this is a unique time in Israel's history, and it could be tempting for us to idealize it or to dismiss it as unrealistic. But hopefully, we've seen today that there are so many applications still for us. We can be committed to the teaching of God's word at this church. We can devote ourselves to each other, viewing our wealth as something to be shared, as something to be open-handed with. We can show hospitality to each other, inviting each other into our homes and sharing a meal. And finally, we can pray together for each other, for this church, for our city. Let's pray together now as we close. Father, we thank you for this passage in Acts, which gives us such a good example of your people following you and loving each other well. We ask, Lord, that you would help us to move into these same practices as we continue to grow in our own salvation and walk with you. We want to love each other well and so glorify you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.